right, open up to your Bibles to Psalm 104, Psalm 104. And again, this psalm is, is praise to the Sovereign Lord, uh, who is the Creator and Provident, and, and His providence. He is, again, it's a praise to His creation. This is a wisdom psalm, and it's also a creation psalm. It's a high-spirited, insightful psalm. It's kind of a remake of Genesis chapter 1. And it's a joyful celebration of the world as the creation of God. When the psalmist and the promise prophets wrote, they often thought about God's work in creation. The structure of the psalm is, number one, praise for God's great creation in verses 1 and 2. Second, the creation of the heavens in verses 3 and 4. Third, the creation of the earth in verses 5 through 9. Fourth, the waters of blessing in verses 10 through 13. Fifth, the fullness of the earth in verses 14 through 18. And then sixth, the patterns of life in verses 19 through 23. Seventh is the praise for God's creation in verses 24 through 26. Eighth, an acknowledgement that all life is dependent upon the Lord, verses 27 through 30. And ninth, a prayer for God's glory in verses 31 through 32. And tenth, a personal response to God in verses 33 through 35. The theme of this psalm is appreciating God through his creation. And he not only creates, but he also maintains what he's created. And all we have to do is look around. Just take the time to look around. And, and if you really look and you, and you study the things, you know, in nature, you can't help but come out and praise God. So, again, uh, the, 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 the theme is, is uh, his creation, appreciating his creation. And uh, the author is unknown. We don't know who wrote this. So let's begin with verse 1 of Psalm 104. And the psalm says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. So the psalm is talking here about the uh, the God of creation. And it's a song to God in nature because he's the creator. And, you know, what a a great thing it is to know that we have, as verse 1 says, a very great God. Not just great, but very great. An awesome God. A mighty God. And it's the majesty of God that's pictured here, and it's using different instances, and all of them are in creation. Princes, leaders, that is, they look great in their earthly robes. They're all decked out, they're beautiful colors, they're 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 well made, they're beautifully made, they're 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 trimmed in in all kinds of different you know ornamentation and and they, they look royal, they look they look you know beautiful. But again, what are God's robes? His, his honor and his majesty. God is seen in his works. And his works proclaim him as infinitely wise and good. And all that is great. Very great. Paul said in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the <clears throat> things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And he goes on to say that man is without excuse because just of creation alone. You know, when you see these things, they they just didn't come about on their own. They were created. Look at verse 2. Who cover yourself with light as with a garment. Who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. 
On the second day of creation is what's pictured here in these words. It says, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. You know, it's just like you would, you know, if you go camping or whenever you've gone, you would stretch out your tent. Well, on the first day of creation, God said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light and there was light. God is light. Uh, He's the father of lights. He dwells in light. He clothes himself with light. Back when this this psalm was written, travelers... Like those in, in, a, in a camel caravan, they would get to their destination for the night and they would stretch out their tents. Well, that's the way God stretched out the heavens. As he did this, he put a layer of water above and the clouds are his chariots, according to verse 3. Look at verse 3 now. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind. So the psalmist says, Lord, you lay out the support beams of your home in the rain clouds. And on the second day of creation, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters in Genesis 1, 6. In other words, let there be a space between the waters to separate water from water. Verses 4 through 6. Who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. On the third day of creation, God said in Genesis 1-9, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God had put waters above the mountains. And the clouds that, co- that, that, that go over the mountains carried quite a bit of water. And now God divides the land and the waters. The earth is built on God's foundations. And God guarantees that it is permanent. Verse 5 says, notice, so that it should not be moved. It will not be moved by any other than God himself. Even though one day we read that the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed. 2 Peter 3.10 Psalm 102, verses 25 through 26, it reads, Long ago, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. But they will perish and they will wear out like old clothing. You will change them like a garment. Why? Because God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And that is going to last forever. The same power that supports the world also provides a firm foundation for believers. Verses 7 and 8. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. On the fourth day, God created the sun and the moon. He simply said, let them appear. Genesis 1, 4 says, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. The sun and the moon are to regulate time here on this earth. We have this in verse 19. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down, he says in verse 8. Now let's look at verses 9 through 12. The psalmist says, You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. And by them, the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. Around the springs of water, there's always plant life growing. And the birds, 
surround those springs and the animals drink from those springs. That's the picture that we have here. And even though God removed the boundaries of the waters during the flood, they were permanently set for and in the purpose of God, according to verse 9 here. And the, and the earth is made, by, by, uh, made fruitful by its springs, according to verses 10 through 12. And the rain that's pictured here as coming from his, verse 12 says, upper chambers, which is his heavenly home. Uh, verse 13, he waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. God's creative acts, putting it into motion, the rain cycles and the watering of the hills is what we see here in verse 13. Verses 14 and 15. It says, He, God, causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Uh, Verse 15, it says, And wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The earth generously produces wine to make glad the heart and oil to anoint the skin and bread to strengthen man's heart. Once again, we see here, we have this whole amazing food chain brought out here and how God has provided for man all through the centuries and the earth is to bring forth the fruit, what, what you know feeds man. We've learned how to till the soil. We've learned how to plant We've learned how to cultivate so that the, the, the plants might grow and how we can raise our food from the earth. And it says that he causes grass to grow for the cattle. Now, we know the wine that makes glad the heart in our day is usually the result of spending way too much time at the wine. You know, in, in God's day, it was something they drank again many times because the water was so bad, you know, that they, they would, you know, give it a little flavoring with the grape. But it was not usually the intoxicating kind of wine. But today, it's kind of different in our culture. In our society, the subject of wine in the church, for the most part, you know, is forbidden. And, and, and I personally believe it's definitely off limits for a person who wants to give their life to serving God. And we'll look at why I believe that. It was forbidden for a man who was to be an overseer in the church. According to 1 Timothy 3.3, he was not to be given to wine. The word given means staying near the wine. It means to drink in excess. We are called to glorify God in our body and spirit. And drinking is not a good way to glorify God. We're also told in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. That means stay away from anything that would look like evil or would connect us to evil. We read what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are, not, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul said in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, not all things edify. I am to glorify God. I am to edify the, the church and my brothers and sisters. And, and, you know, drinking is not one of the ways to do it. Now, some things may be lawful. That is, they're okay to do. But they should still be avoided. Why? Because they're not helpful. They're not beneficial. And they might not help me to grow spiritually or they might harm others spiritually. 
You know, maybe, you know, maybe when, when, you, when a person got saved, alcohol wasn't their problem. And they may feel, the Bible doesn't say you cannot. It says, but don't be a drunkard, don't get drunk. And I, usually when I drank back in the day, that's all it was for. It wasn't social. It was to get drunk. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that's, that's what drinking leads to. And so a person that might just got saved who has a problem with alcohol might see somebody else drinking and, and it would cause them to stumble. And Paul said, I'm not to do any, I won't do anything that will cause my brother to stumble. And again, it's esteeming the other higher than myself. It's to look, uh, you know, uh, to help others and to help bring them along in Christ. And I'm not to do anything that will cause them to stumble. And so again, some things may be lawful for me to do, but I shouldn't do them because they're not helpful. And they might be a problem. I might cause a problem for, for my brother or sister. Even though something is lawful, more things to be there need, are more things to be considered before you do them. For example, most of us probably have driver's licenses. But just because I have a license to drive cannot mean I can drive across the sidewalks or drive 100 miles an hour or, or, or uh, in oncoming traffic. I, I can't do that. I can't go barreling down the highway and drive however I want. I need to be consider. I need to consider the weather. I need to consider traffic conditions. I need to consider the speed limit. I need to consider the safety of others. And so that freedom that I have to drive also includes. I need to watch out for those that are out there as well. So it's expedient to drive your car according to the law. I'm sorry, according to the above mentioned conditions. Secondly. The principle of power. Paul said, you know, th these things might be expedient. They might be okay or lawful for me. But, you know, I'm not going to be brought under the power of any of them. And how many alcoholics are there who started out drinking and thought, I'll never become an alcoholic. And then have become in bondage to the drink or the drug. Paul says, hey, I'm not going to take that chance. I'm not going to do something that might bring me under its power, under its bondage. And you see, Satan is slick and he knows. He knows exactly what our weaknesses are. The word translated power, when Paul said, I will not be brought under the power, means to control. I will not be brought under anything's control. Many believers are controlled by their appetites. You know, and, and so, you know, we do a lot of, you know, we're unhealthy many times, you know, because of the things that we eat. We don't eat properly and, and, and we get illnesses and, and, you know, we can get overweight or whatever the thing is because I, I'm not taking care and, and, and watching and eating healthy. We read in Proverbs 31, 4 through 7, it is not for kings to drink wine or for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law. Notice. Here's the reasons why. And pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. These verses tell us that wine is not for kings. Why? Because it can impair their judgment. And in the Old Testament, the priests were, were, were not supposed to drink any, anything when they were serving God in the temple. Leviticus 10.9, it says, Tell Aaron that he and his sons are not to drink wine when they approach God in their service. Now, Leviticus 10.9 was written after Aaron's sons. Remember Nadab and Abihu? 
They were struck by God for offering strange fire in the tabernacle of meeting, implying they may have been drunk. A part of the Nazarite vow, which was the vow of a consecration of a person to, to, to give their life to God, a part of that, that, that Nazarite vow was not to drink any wine. Remember when Samson was announced by the angel to his mother, she was not to drink wine during her pregnancy. And, and I find it amazing you know, and you see it now, but when it first started coming out, when, when you go to the market, you see the California state legislature, legislature has recognized that alcohol beverages can be harmful to the unborn child. And you see those signs up in the market near the liquor areas. You see all these little signs and posters in the stores where they sell alcoholic beverages, warning women who are pregnant that if they drink, it could damage the fetus of an unborn child. God knew this way before the California state legislature or any legislature. He warned Manoah's wife of that several thousand years ago, and we found it out centuries later uh, and are warning, warning women today. And yet the scriptures warned about it thousands of years ago. But that was part of the Nazarite vow. We read a warning about wine in Proverbs 20, verse 1. It tells us that wine is a, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, and a person who is deceived by it is not wise. Proverbs 29, 23, 23, 29 says this. Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who is always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It is the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Don't let the sparkle and smooth taste of wine deceive you. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous serpent. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations and you will say crazy things. You will stagger like a sailor tossed at sea, clinging to a, uh, clinging to a swaying mast. And you will say, they hit me but I didn't feel it been there before I didn't even know it when they went and when they beat me up when will I wake up so I can even have another drink I mean it can't get any clearer than that some interpret this as when it has gone through the fermentation process it says for in the end it bites like a poisonous snake snake it stings like a viper so this kind of the proverb is to the alcoholic I personally don't drink alcoholic beverages. Don't want to, don't need it, don't have any need for it. Don't want anything to do with it. God took that desire away the day that I got saved. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit, the Lord is an inspiring Spirit. Wine is an intoxicating and degrading one. And our whole being ought to be entirely yielded up to the Holy Spirit to be possessed and controlled by Him and Him alone. How many families have experienced the effect of alcohol in their lives? It's had on their families and the children. And many times the family ends in divorce and separation. I thank God my daughters never had to see that. They never had to see me or Kathy under that influence. Verses 16 through 18. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which, which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has their, uh, her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild ghosts. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. We see here that nature provides places to live for the creatures. God has made places for them to live and to find protection in. Verse 19, God appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. Ancient people learned that the sun and the moon regulated seed time and harvest time on the earth. There's something written about the ruins of an Indian building in Arizona. 
they found two holes that were made in a wall. And for a long time, nobody could figure out why these two holes were there. They finally discovered that when you could look through both of those holes and see the moon, it was time to plant corn. God's word says that he gave us the moon for seasons. The sun and the moon move according to schedule. God's schedule. So you see, when you think about these things, you really can't say we're living in a meaningless universe. A universe that just came to being on its own and it's just functioning on its own. It's not, it's a God-led, a God-created, God-led universe. Now, what did God create on the fifth day? That's when the animal life appeared. Look at verses 20 through 23 now. You make darkness and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and they seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Work is man's duty. It says in Genesis, six days you shall labor. Six days you shall labor. And this is just as much a divine order as the command to not work on the seventh day. And if you're purposely not working, you're not in tune with God's law. Just as, as, as you're not in, in tune with God if you don't take a break. There's been a new reversal today in a, in a, in a lot of uh, marriages. Traditionally, the man went to work and his wife was the homemaker and she took care of the home and the children. But now, if the woman has a higher income, he's staying home and she's going to work. Paul's command in Second Thessalonians 3.10 is, If any man would not work, neither should he eat. That represents the value that society, as it grows to maturity, will follow. The idle man isn't happy or healthy. Now, while some won't work, there are many who want to, but they can't because of physical ailments. That's a different story. There are many women and men in poverty and near starving who would love to work, gladly love to work if they had the chance. But again, they can't. Physical difficulties. Work ought to have its limit as well. God rested on the seventh day. And he said man was to rest on the seventh day. It wasn't because God was tired, but he was setting a principle. Man goes out to his work and to his labor, it says here, until the evening. Jesus said, come aside by yourselves and rest a while. We need that. That's a necessity of life. And no work is right that doesn't allow rest. And no man does himself any good or or gives God his best if he lets his work control his life. And there are some that do. They work and they work and they work. And and many times they say it's to to gain, but they don't. Our, Our work has to have a time of rest. And as time limits our opportunities and we get older and our strength and our energy slowly fades away, the day comes when our work is going to be over here. Good or bad is what we're going to leave behind. Ecclesiastes 9.10, Solomon said this, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. In other words, enjoy your work while you can, because one day all that we did here is going to be judged, both the good and the bad alike. I like this this quote by Dorothy L. Sayers. She said, work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. 
It is or should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he offers himself to God. Verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Creation is filled with a mind-blowing variety of creatures which shows us the infinite creativity and goodness and wisdom of our loving Almighty God. I said earlier, just take the time to look around at your natural surroundings, the trees, the flowers, the color. The colors of flowers are are amazing. You know, they, they can't be duplicated. The birds, the clouds, the mountains... On and on it goes. And thank God for his creativity. And you know what? Look at people in a new way. Look at each person as God's unique creation. With his or her own special talents, abilities, and gifts. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. That is, we don't look at them as just, as just flesh and blood and bone. Our new relationship to Christ has brought about a new relationship to the world and the people that are around us. We don't look at life or people any any more than we uh, uh, any more like we used to. We see them now as human beings that need to be saved. They need to know Jesus. And one of the interesting things about this psalm is its emphasis on the continuing activity of God in nature. This same truth is also taught in other places in the scripture. Jesus said in John 5, 17, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. God is never not at work. And you know, when you're going through something, and you're going through some trial or some problem, and you think you don't see anything happening, there's no evidence that you can see of, that, that, something, that God is doing something, understand that he is. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. God is at work behind the scenes. God is always working. Psalm 121, 4 through 5 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. Colossians 1, 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. In other words, all things exist and are together, held together by Jesus. Hebrews 1, 2 and 3. Through whom also he made the worlds and upholding. Notice, upholding all things by the word of his power. Everything is being upheld by the, by, by the, the power of God's word. All he had to do, is, he, all he had to do was to, to, to say, you know, world stop orbiting. It, it would stop. Just that simple. Everything in the universe in its orbit, in its circle, and whatever it's doing, is again, is upheld by, by, by God. Verses 25 through 26. This great and wide sea, in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great, there the ships uh, sail about, there is that Leviathan, which you have made to play there. Verse 27. These all, I love this, these all wait for you. All the things in the ocean, the Levi, all, every, all these creations. He's the, the psalmist says, Lord, they're all waiting for you. 
Here's why. That you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand and they're all filled with good. I mean, if the animal kingdom is there waiting for God because they know that God's going to, you know, that God's going to take, how much more should we? How much more should we know that God, we're, we're worth way more than, than, than animals? The phrase here, these all wait for you, includes all living creatures mentioned in the psalm. Not just the sea life, every living, breathing creature. All creatures depend on God's daily generosity, verse 28 says. They live by His help and they die when God takes away their last breath. And look at verse 28 says, they are filled with good. You know, we might think, oh, these poor animals, they, they hardly get anything to eat. But the Bible says they're filled with good. You know what the word filled means? Filled to satisfaction. Filled to satisfaction. Verse 30. You send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the earth. Each life is the result of God's creating and renewing spirit. After God, has, after God finished his creation, then it was ready for man to be put on the earth. His home was ready and it was made for him. This psalm expresses God's sovereignty in history. This psalm tells us about his sovereignty over all creation. God has supreme, unlimited power over the whole world, the whole universe. God creates, He preserves, He governs, and He destroys. And as we understand God's power, we will realize that He is more than able to handle our life. The Holy Spirit is called the breath of God. As it was breathed out in a mysterious and wonderful way over his whole creation. But especially into the soul of man. Into the souls of men. To give them a chance to be partakers of God and of happiness. The Holy Spirit is God that's, who's secretly present. And he surrounds us on all sides. He enters into us. He gets into the deepest parts of our being. Just like the air that we breathe. Now, we can't see him, but we know he's there. It's like the wind. Why? Because we see the effects of it. When the Holy Spirit enters a man or a woman, you don't see that. You don't see it, but you know what? They see the effects of it. They are transformed. They don't think the way they did anymore. They don't live. They don't speak. They don't do the things they used to anymore. They're a new creature. You see the effects of the indwelling Holy Spirit and it's like the wind. You can't see it, but you can see the effects of it when the trees are swaying and the leaves are blowing around on the ground. The Holy Spirit is sometimes compared to the wind, as I just said. Like in the discussion that Jesus and Nicodemus had. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes. So the wind, when we hear it or feel it, might remind us of the breath of God and the effects of wind. And the clouds that it brings over the earth, the moisture that the earth, the, that the air takes up and the dews that come down from heaven, the rains that come down, the springs that gush out, the waters that flow over the earth. All of these symbolic things in scripture, they, are, they, are, they come from the same spirit, showing himself in gifts and, and, and purifying graces and communicating spiritual life to his people. The Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son. 
As he's present in all that he does, all of his works, he's always present in those that he's regenerated and made sons and daughters of Christ. You can't see him. You can't hear him. He's beyond all feeling or any outward sense. Yet he's infinitely closer to every one of us than any of the things that we can see, hear, or feel or can make out by reasoning. He's close by always. He's close at hand to all of his faithful ones. At every moment of their dangerous and difficult journey, he's there to guide us. He's there to comfort us. He's there to purify us. He's there to strengthen us. He's there to refresh us. He's there to do whatever we need. The great I am, the becoming one. I will become what you need me to be at the time. And by him, uh, we read in Acts 17, 28, by him, we live, we move, we have our being as God's people. Verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. When God finished creation, remember what he did? He sat back, he looked at it, and he saw it is good. Verse 32 and 33. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. As I will sing to the Lord. Notice, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my, while I have my being. I love that. Man is on the earth because God created him. And God created him to praise him. We're here to praise God. Man has been put on earth and he, he, he has an address. And he lives in the Garden of Eden. Singing, singing is nature's music. Because the scriptures tell us that the mountains sing. Isaiah 49, 13. It tells us that the valleys sing. In Psalm 65, 13. It tells us that the trees of the woods sing before the Lord. Summer is filled with birds singing. And, and, you know, all last week, it, it, as I was studying this, I don't, Pastor Tony may have heard it too, but there's like a bird somewhere out in the front of our church that just sings all day long. I don't know if he ever moves all day long. Pastor, you heard him, right? You can't help but hear him. And, I, and I'm going there, and sometimes I'm going, it's like it's just, I hate to say it, but bird, you know, go, go somewhere because he was loud and he was, but he was just chirping away all day long. It's just, and it just, it's neat because it was God saying, look, here I am in creation. It was just, it was just amazing to hear him chirp all day long, all week long. But again, that's, that's what creation is all about. It's so neat. God speaks through the simplest things. If we'll just stop and we'll pay attention. So again, uh, man is on the earth here. We're here to create him, to, um, to praise him. You know, again, singing is, 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 is the music of nature. Singing is, the, singing is the music of the early church. Singing was the music of the early church. Pliny, the Roman scholar, said this. He makes mention in a letter that he wrote to Emperor Trajan that the Christians of those days gathered together before day and they sang hymns and praises to Jesus. Paulinus testifies that this practice of singing spread throughout every region of the Western church. Justin Martyr tells us that in his time, they sang and sent, sent up prayers to God. Beza confesses that at his first entrance into the church, into a congregation, he heard them singing Psalm 91. He says he felt himself exceedingly comforted and the sound of it stayed in his heart afterwards. Afterwards. 
St. Augustine reports about himself. It says, when he went to Milan and he heard the people sing, it was the reason for his conversion. His words and his confessions were, when I remember my tears at my conversion under the melody of thy church. And you know, I believe with all my heart that they that I got saved, that's what brought me to the Lord. I had never heard such oneness in praise and singing like I did at that tent in Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. Of everything that I, I, I was totally, totally blown away. A couple of thousand people in that tent. And when they were singing together, there was nothing like it. And that had prepared me. It prepared me when the word of God was taught and was spoken and the altar call was, there was no hesitation. God had primed me and made me ready for the word through that worship. That's why worship is so important to the church. Man, I believe if people came in, they heard us singing to our God at the top of our lungs. I mean, you either get saved or you get out. (laughs) I mean, it's just an amazing thing. And in our day, we find the same practice. The Reformation in Germany under Martin Luther was greatly promoted by singing. Luther taught the children to sing hymns, expressing the wonderful truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the children... They would go around the streets singing these gospel hymns. And this is the way they communicated the gospel to everybody around them. The Romanist said, Luther has done us more harm by his songs than by his sermons. The followers of Wycliffe and Huss were named psalm singers. In later times, the great religious movements and revivals that have greatly helped to spread uh, uh, the, the the gospel of Christ have been more or less connected with singing to the Lord. Singing is the music of heaven. You see, because singing expresses outwardly what's going on inside. And the saints and the angels we read are going to be showing their praises by singing. And we see that in many passages in the book of Revelation. Get ready to sing your heart out. Because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. So start practicing now. Verse 34. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. The Hebrew word that's used for meditation suggests three things in particular. And each one of them is important to us. First, meditation means meditation. Secondly, it means prayer. And third, it means communication. First, meditation. Meditation suggests the sweetness that's in the spiritual thought and thinking about heavenly things. Secondly, meditation suggests the sweetness that's in the spiritual communion that we have with God in prayer. And third, meditation suggests the sweetness that's in spiritual communication, that is conversation with, our, with each other talking about God. And all of them are very useful and helpful duties that we need to practice all the time. Meditating, first of all, is sweet. It stirs us up to do it. It stirs us up to meditate. And we have good reason to be careful about what we meditate and think about. What we meditate on and think about, which is important to us. And it tells us a lot about what's in our heart. 
Paul said in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Notice the Bible tells us what we should think about, what we should meditate on. There's nothing that shows more what men like than what they think about, what their meditations are. What we think about helps to determine our will and are carried out, you know, the more we think about them. So we should be concerned and we should be careful about the things that we think about. What will help our thoughts? How about give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, and then meditate on these things, Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 15. Secondly, talk and commune with God in prayer. There's no friends that have such a common joy with each other in their company as God and his servants do with one another. And it's it's a blessing to us. It's, it's, it's It's pleasing to them to think of God, but to speak to him. And then he to them. Hey, that is more comforting when we open our heart to him at any time. And when we do, he comes in. There's no better joy than that. And thirdly, conversation. This refers to the communion and communica- the communion and communication of Christ, of Christians with each other. Christians find a lot of joy in godly and spiritual communication with each other. Not only when they think about Jesus within themselves, which is meditation, not only when they speak to Christ, which is done in prayer, but also when we speak of him and about him when we're talking to each other. Verse 35 as we close. Many sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. On the other hand, man has sinned. So what will God God do? Well, he's going to remove those sinners from the earth one day. Those that oppose the almighty God, those who oppose and fight against him, they're definitely going to be consumed. Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire. No one that hardens himself against the Almighty God can win. They can't prosper. Those that rebel against the abundance of such, I mean, convincing evidence of God's existence, and yet they still refuse to to serve him, they're going to be consumed. And with good reason. As Paul said in Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now I picture when a man say, well, you know, I didn't know about the gospel. I never heard the gospel preached. God says, did you happen to look around while you were down there? Did you look at the trees and the birds and the bees and the, and the animals and the clouds and the flowers? That's enough to tell you I existed. When the wicked are gone, we will be praising God for all eternity. And the psalmist said at the end, I praise you, O Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this psalm, God. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you so much. God, that you have... You've given us so much evidence of your existence, Father. And Lord, as Paul said to the Romans, that we are without excuse. So God, help us, God, to keep this in mind. Help us, Lord, to to not take things for granted, God. 
Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your tender mercies, Lord. We thank you for the beauty of your creation and we thank you for your creativity, Lord. And Father, I just pray right now that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, for whatever reason, God, that through this psalm, as the psalmist pointed out, your creative genius, the beauty of your creation, the power of your creation, and how all things are upheld by your word. As the psalmist said in Psalm 147, you know all the stars by name. By name. How much more important are we than any star? You know us by name. You know who we are. You know our character. You know what's in us, God. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And as they do, if God has spoken to your heart and and you recognize, I want to know, I want to be a child of this beautiful uh, creator of the universe, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.